All right, let's be real. What has been the hardest thing about your pregnancy and postpartum journey? Is it the postpartum painful sex that nobody talks about? What are you supposed to do with that? Is it the fact that you might have torn during delivery and you have no idea how to heal now that you're in postpartum? Welcome to the Onus Podcast, where we bring on mothers, parents, and pregnant postpartum individuals to talk about their journey and their experiences to give that knowledge back to people that need it. And we are also attached to the theonuscollaborative.com, which is a free online educational directory where we help moms and parents connect to maternity care providers in their local area. We are here to give the power back to you guys so you have a choice in your journey. We'll have space for midwives, doulas, pelvic floor PTs, massage therapist. And as we continue expanding, we hope that we can support you. All right. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome back to the Onus Podcast. My name is Erin and I am the founder of the Onus Collaborative. And today we're bringing on one of our providers and I'm so, so excited for this discussion. We have brought on Sarah Statina and she actually lives in Chicago, Illinois, where she works as a certified nurse midwife. She's gonna be talking to us about the history of midwifery, why it's not commonly found in the US and yeah, what your experience could be like if you decide to birth with a CNM or a midwife in a birthing center. So we're super excited and we hope you all enjoy this episode. So I'm a certified nurse midwife, like you said, in Illinois, and I'm the director of midwifery at the third freestanding birth center in Illinois called Burr Ridge Birth Center, which opens up uh, just in a few months, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been a midwife for, um, let's see. Oh, four years now and have been working in women's health and reproductive health and with birthing people for the last eight years um, in different capacities as nursing, as a doula, um, home birth, labor and delivery units. So seen it all. Wow. And did you say you're going to have the third standing birth center in Illinois? Freestanding. Yeah. So there's, there's only two birth centers in Illinois right now. Um, one is in central Illinois and one is in Berwyn, which is right next to Chicago and Burridge will be the third. So yeah, we don't have many options here. (laughs) Wow. I didn't realize there weren't that many in Illinois. (laughs) And yeah, the laws made it really hard to open, but we're there's a wave coming. I think there are lots of new birth centers going to uh, right on the cusp of opening here. I'm excited. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. And you're part of that like generation of bringing midwifery practice to Illinois, which is also super exciting. Um, <laughs> so one of the questions I have for you that we wanted to start with. So today we're really going to focus on just the basics of midwifery care and getting people introduced to it. So I think one of the super important things we can start with is what is midwifery care? Because it's not common in um, not common practice in the United States. So I think it'd be really cool if you could talk about what is midwif- midwifery care and why don't we see it often used in the United States? So yeah, that's a that's a big question. So midwifery in general, um, there's a lot of different avenues to the career of midwifery. There's lots of different pathways to get to become a midwife in the U.S. The pathway that I took is nurse midwife and um, nurse midwives and nurse midwifery is um, a advanced practice nurse degree that specializes in reproductive health, pregnancy, birth, 
all of it. So um, that's the one I can speak to because that's the path that I took. But I do like to point out that while I love and I'm really proud of being a nurse midwife, it's not the only legitimate way to be a midwife in the U.S. Um, they are the only midwives to be licensed and legal in all 50 states, but many other states have certified professional midwives that are legal. And there's there's just a lot of different nuanced uh, ways to be a midwife here. So I like to point that out. Um, but for nurse midwives, um, what I do, it's a specialty, um, like I mentioned, of reproductive health, but that means we focus on pre-pregnancy care, pregnancy, labor, birth, we even do newborn care for the first 28 days of life. And we can do well body care throughout the lifespan, like pap smears, annual visits, period, troubleshooting, birth control. We can order imaging and labs. So it's pretty comprehensive um, in what our scope includes. But our core philosophy is really supporting low risk pregnancy and birth and that focus is on education and prevention, giving people the tools to learn about their bodies, how to be healthy. Um, but we also support the physiological and biological body process of, of growing a baby, having a baby um, with a big emphasis on client autonomy and choice. So um, respecting the person as a whole person in whatever they want to do for their body. Yeah. And I love that. And sorry, another question I have for you is actually what inspired you to become a certified nurse midwife? So I was in nursing school already kind of on that trajectory. I had a few nurses in my life. My grandmother was a nurse and um, some family friends that were nurses. And I ended up in nursing school um, and was pretty sure I wanted to either go into like the military nursing or be like an ICU nurse. And one of my last rotations in nursing school was in OB and it was this tiny little um, low volume community birth um, labor and delivery unit. And I saw my very first birth and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is what I need to be doing. And I didn't like the way that I saw it being done. And so I was like, I think I can do this better, which is kind of cocky, but I was like, someone needs to be treating these people a little bit better than what I'm seeing here. Um, and I remember telling my instructor like, that was really moving. I don't like how that birthing person was treated. And my instructor was like, have you ever heard of midwives? And I was like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and she kind of opened my eyes to this world of like, okay, this is what seems like common sense to me of how birthing people should be getting cared for. And why is this not, why is this the exception and not the like standard of care in this country. And then I just, you know, opened up the rabbit hole of midwifery world and birth work. And I've never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people end up in say becoming a doula or a midwife is they either experience it themselves or they see someone else experience it. That feeling of yeah. lack of informed decision-making, lack of bodily autonomy, especially in the birthing room. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, sorry, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> when you are studying nursing, do they highlight that CN CNM is an option for future or is that something that's usually not talked about? So I'm, I don't, I think it really varies based on the instructors that you have. So I know that we definitely talked about the concept of a nurse practitioner and like going on to 
just this idea that nursing is just such a great like starting line for so many avenues of um, of care throughout your career. And that could be going on to be an advanced practice nurse that could be going into research or whatever it was. But I don't really remember having heard specifically about the concept of a certified nurse midwife until my instructor like pointed that out after I saw a birth. And, um, and I don't like most people, I had never really thought about what a midwife was and that it could ever be associated with like a profession. And that could be considered like a highly trained individual. Mm -hmm. Um, and so once I like actually started researching that, I was like, these are, and I get to do gynae care. Like what? Great. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it was, so I don't think they really like focus on it. The whole goal was to get us to be bedside nurses initially. Right. But they did touch on the concept that there was, there was more to nursing than, than just stopping at, I was getting an associate's degree. So they definitely encouraged the, the pursuit of, of higher education if, if desired. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we're going to talk about this, but midwifery care in the United States is not highlighted enough. It's one of the reasons I've added it to the website and trying to create more education around it because it is such important care. And so I would love if you could actually talk about why do we not hear about um, midwifery care in the United States? Because I believe if I'm correct, correct me if I'm wrong, only 8% of low risk births in the United States are actually done with CNMs. Yeah, the last stat I saw was about 10%, uh, and that's midwives. So I don't know if that includes all kinds of midwives, okay. um, not just PMs, but I'm sure that that's pretty accurate. So yeah, it's it's so low, which is really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think if we want to really understand why midwives are not really it's so interesting. The United States is so unique, right? So we are a high resource country, one of the most wealthiest countries. We spend more than any other country on healthcare. And yet we have the highest maternal mortality rates among other developed countries, right? So, and the key stark difference, one of them is that in most other countries, midwives outnumber OBGYNs like several fold. Whereas in the U.S., midwives, like you just mentioned, are just a tiny fraction of the people that are attending births. So to understand why that happened, why are we the only rich, high-resource country that isn't utilizing midwives? Um, we kind of have to look back at history and what exactly happened that changed that standard. Um, and I think most people realize like this idea that birthing with an OBGYN for low-risk pregnancies being somehow safer than with midwives is really just a great marketing strategy of the 1900s. And it's not really founded on any evidence or, or data. So I guess I can talk about that. Um, <laughs> around like, so the 1900s, almost like 95% of births were still taking place in a home setting. And 50% of those births were with midwives. Um, so physicians already existed, obviously they were attending half of the births, but 50% is obviously a far cry from the 10% of today. So how did that change? Um, in Chicago, for example, around that time, nearly like two thirds of the population were first or second generation immigrants, like from Poland, Ireland, Germany. These are places that obviously we're already familiar with, 
and comfortable with midwives, right? They were doing that in those countries. So they brought midwives over. The The immigrants that came over were used to using midwives. So they just continued using midwives. They didn't know any other way. Um, and they brought midwifery to communities like Chicago. And meanwhile, I, I um, you said you've done research into historical midwives. I'm sure you've learned about grand midwives, which were the black midwives in the South that were essentially doing the same thing. They were the only life-saving access to healthcare for poor and rural black communities in the South. And so there were midwives like everywhere around the country. It was a normal part of childbearing. Um, But what happened is at the turn of the century, physicians started being seen as this like upper class elite sector. And, and with that status, the general opinion of most other middle-class and upper-class society kind of began to consider midwives as these like poor, ignorant, unclean people that, and obviously that's really, uh, incredibly racist. It stems from a lot of blatant racism and classism toward black people, immigrants, and the poor. Um, So this was also the time that medical colleges were becoming a thing too. Um, And there was still really loose training and regulations. So there definitely wasn't like this high quality medical care that was training that was happening, but midwives were already starting to take on this like stereotype that they weren't getting trained compared to physicians. Ironically, like 90% of physicians at the time didn't even hold a college degree either, but regardless, they were able to kind of present this idea that we're trained and midwives aren't. Um, yeah. And, and so finally, I think it was like, like 1910, 1912 or something like that maternal and infant mortality in the U S like there started to be some acknowledgement that the U S was doing poorly compared to other countries. And they were like, Oh, we should probably look at this. And midwives were a really easy scapegoat for the medical society that was really trying to win public trust and become kind of mainstream. Mm -hmm. So there were, there were studies during that time that found that midwives actually had lower maternal mortality rates than physicians, probably because they were practicing based on like these oral traditions of like wisdom that was passed down over generations and they knew what things worked and didn't. So they, they actually had better outcomes than physicians, but it didn't matter because at that point, like white middle and upper class women already believed that because physicians were also white and upper class, that they were somehow superior. So there was this class division where people were getting their care. The middle upper class were choosing physicians and the immigrant rural poor communities were utilizing midwives still. And some communities were thinking, well, like, okay, if there's this concern about midwives, maybe not having enough formal training, then maybe we should get them formal training. Um, Like let's create a midwifery program or something. Um, But that idea was pretty quickly overpowered, Mm -hmm. I think, because I mean, eventually midwifery programs came, I think like around 1925 is when Mary Breckenridge started the first nurse midwifery college. But there was just so much happening that we midwives were really put on the back burner and were not a priority with this like growing medical um, model. Mm-hmm. So they were also, you know, growing hospitals at this time. We were getting really popular and politically the idea of training midwives just kind of clashed with the growth of medicine. So they, um, 
they didn't really, I think they originally thought like, maybe we'll just ignore them. Like, well, they'll go away. Like if we just stop, like they can just keep caring for the poor and, and they'll disappear eventually. (laughs) Um, but that didn't like work obviously, um, because there was always going to be a need for midwives. There was always going to be people who couldn't afford doctors during that time. There was always going to be rural and poor communities. So, you know, those people kept choosing midwives. And I think birth was starting to be recognized as this really lucrative thing. Like, oh, like this could be an easy, easy way to make money. I'm very much simple, simplifying this. There was a lot that went into it, but um, I think when they saw that this was lucrative and that midwives were competition, they knew they had to kind of intervene even more. Um, so they actually launched a intentional and arguably one of the most successful smear campaigns against midwives to kind of shift childbirth into hospitals with physicians. Yeah. And they kind of, yeah, they promoted this idea that midwives were dangerous. They were dirty and untrained. Like they had posters of midwives drowning babies, um, really horrible stuff. And at the same time, hospitals were pushing this idea of like painless childbirth with twilight sleep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> come here, you can have a painless child, um, childbirth. And, um, and so that campaign was so successful that nearly all Chicago midwives had been eliminated from practice by the 1930s. And that happened like everywhere across the country. Um, and even though there's like obviously a resurgence in midwifery care now, um, it, a lot of the general population still believe that that original smear campaign, right? Like they still think midwives are unsafe and somehow a lesser profession than OBGYNs, even though, like I mentioned in 1925, there was already the first well-established midwifery training program in the United States at Frontier Nursing Service. So it's, we know from high quality data and research, and we can talk about that today if you want, but midwives are exceptional care providers. They have extensive training. They have fantastic outcomes for birthing people, for infants, Um, and so what most people think about midwives is really not true, um, and never really was true. So it's hard. It's a hard profession to be in. We're constantly having to kind of explain your value and your, um, like the good aspects of your career that, that so many people stereotype to, to think is, is a negative. Yeah. And it's just so crazy that that pro- like that smear campaign that was so long ago, we still see playing out today. Like still, oh, yeah. either I meet people who have no idea what a midwife is, or you like talk to your OBGYN about midwifery care and they're like, oh, you know, like I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> and it just actually blows my mind how I'm, like there's a lack of education about the importance of midwifery care. And we were talking about it earlier in places like Australia, England, almost every other country in the world, like the main person for low risk births is, is midwives. You go to your midwife first. And then if your midwife believes that you are a high risk birth, they refer you on to an OBGYN. We're in the United States. Everyone just goes to an OB. And even if you are low risk, I don't know many OBGYNs that would actually say, oh, you know, you can actually birth with a licensed midwife. Like that would be a great option. Oh yeah. You mm-hmm. don't do yeah. They don't really do referrals the other direction. Yeah. And so would you say that a lot of times when you meet moms or parents, do you find 
still a bit of a hesitation when you're trying to explain what you do and what the benefit of it is? I'd say, um, so when I worked in the hospital setting, when clients came to our practice and they were already like right in front of us as a, uh, like a midwife for an appointment, there was a good chance they had a good understanding. They probably already had done research and, and found their way to us to begin with. Uh, I think the hardest part was getting people through the door, um, to know that we were like even an option for them. A lot of people assume that they're not low risk. They hear this term low risk and high risk, and they just assume maybe one component of their history makes them high, which usually isn't the case. Um, but I think when clients are the, a lot of, the most common conversation I have is really not with the client about safety. It's usually their partner or their family. Um, so their partner is saying, why are we like, I don't want the second best for you. I want the best, which is an OBGYN, right? Yeah. Um, and OBGYNs are amazing and I don't want to undermine their value and their place in in obstetrics and in healthcare in the U S but it is an overutilized specialty because I've said this before too, is when, when you need an annual checkup, you go to a primary care provider who is a generalist. They know how to handle most things. And for most people, that's the only doctor they'll need to see. And if they identify something wrong with your heart during that annual visit, they refer you to a cardiologist, a specialist. You wouldn't start by going to the cardiologist for your annual checkup if nothing was wrong with your heart, right? So, and just like you said, like most people here start with the specialist in OBGYN and never even make it through the first round of a primary care provider, which should be a midwife when it comes to obstetrics. So every other country that has better birth outcomes than us is doing it the way where everyone enters care with a midwife and is referred out if they need additional support. And if OBGYNs can focus on their specialty, which is abnormal and surgery, you know, like they would have so much more time to really focus on those high risk cases than trying to balance both low risk and high risk, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I think those are important. Yeah. So I do spend a lot of time talking with partners and about the safety of midwives because they're just not sold on the idea. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of conversations that happen like at an administrative level too, like within hospital systems, within facilities of like us having to explain what we are, what we can do, why we're safe and that things that we're doing is not radical um, and that it's based on evidence. And that's probably the most draining aspect of, of midwifery. Yeah. Like constantly having to defend something that is so important. You've been trained, you have the qualification and there's research to back it, but the research isn't brought to the forefront in the United States. It's not there. Or if we bring the, if we bring the research to them, um, they are, it's still dismissed unless there is a physician voice that is supporting us. Yeah. And, And that varies dramatically. There are some really, um, 
wonderful facilities and states even that have really well integrated midwives into their healthcare system and they're reaping the benefits of it. There's actually a link between the states in the US who have the lowest rates of midwives attending their births. They they have the worst outcomes for birthing people and then vice versa, right? So when you have higher access to midwives and midwives are well integrated into healthcare systems, there's better birthing outcomes for well, birthing outcomes and outcomes for babies. So that means that even if clients don't directly birth with midwives, if they're a part of the system that has integrated midwives, they're still benefiting. Um, so the more midwives we have, the more welcome they are into current system that we have, everyone benefits. Yeah. There's better, like higher rates of vaginal birth. There's higher rates of birth after C-sections. There's higher breastfeeding rates. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And uh, the question I wanted to ask you, something you brought up is low risk versus high risk. I think you're right. This is something that people don't fully understand. Everyone just assumes they're high risk because they see a story or they hear a story. They have a family member that had something happen to them. Do you mind briefly, it might be a little bit complex. I don't know, but do you mind briefly going over what's the difference between a low risk versus high risk pregnancy? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway is that there's a difference between being um, a, an, a, an appropriate risk level for setting for the setting that you're choosing to birth in versus midwifery. So you can be too high risk to birth out of the hospital. Like you may not be appropriate for home birth or birth center care, but you could still be eligible for midwifery care in a hospital setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that was my prior practice. You know, we we had a lot of clients who maybe risked out of home birth or couldn't have the out of hospital community birth that they had wanted, but still wanted midwives. And we were able to provide this really holistic in hospital experience for them with the benefits of midwifery. And so there are definitely lines. And um, I'd say if, if the easiest way to kind of find out is to just ask the question and have a midwife review your records because a midwife is going to be able to tell you whether or not you are within their scope of practice and if you would be safe to birth with them. So um, it is definitely nuanced and it's to the, all of the possible, um, I guess, factors that go into deciding risk or assessing risk is, is like I said, nuanced, but um, it's usually not as clear cut as people think like, like VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean, you can do a VBAC with a midwife in a lot of settings you can. Um, and you actually probably will have a better outcome Mm -hmm. if you do that, if you choose a midwife, right. You're more likely to be successful in your VBAC. Um, you're less likely to have a cesarean birth. You're less likely to have a preterm birth. You're lower, like lower rate of intervention in general, just by choosing a midwife in any setting. So, I mean, we even at my last practice, we even co-managed. So there's something, a lot of hospital-based midwifery practices have a physician that they are, well, all midwives, um, likely have a collaborative relationship or consulting relationship with a physician for the clients that, that do end up needing additional levels of care because of risk. So if something comes up during pregnancy, 
this midwife could have a conversation with a physician, review the case, decide the best course of action, and determine together, is this client still appropriate for midwifery care with this plan we decided, or is this client going to receive uh, more appropriate care under a physician? And that's how the ideal scenario works, right? Is like that referral of you stay with the midwife as long as it's appropriate and you go to a physician if you need that extra level of, of, uh, complication managed. So, um, yeah, I, I think we were able to co-manage high blood pressure and clients were still able to birth with midwives and have really lovely births while still being receiving the best high quality treatments for high blood pressure and pregnancy. And, gestational diabetes and all of these things, which, you know, risk you out of most community settings, but don't necessarily risk you out of midwifery care. Wow. Okay. So basically the difference, there are different levels of what high risk means basically. Yes. Yes. So you could technically be considered high risk, but just too high risk for say a home birth, but you could still maybe fall into the category of birthing with a midwife in a hospital. Right. Depending on their um, privileges. So what does their hospital allow them to care for? And do they have a physician in their group or that they're consulting with that has agreed to kind of like support them in managing those things? So we had a physician within our practice of midwives, one physician, five midwives. We managed a majority of the births because a majority of the births were low risk or fell into uh, the scope of midwifery. And for those that truly completely risked out of midwifery care, even a hospital setting, they would go to our physician partner. Wow. I did not realize that. That's actually really amazing. <laughs> that is very it, cool. Yeah. It was a wonderful way to practice midwifery because um, it was very collaborative. Mm. I got to assist my physician. We would do um, twin births together. So, uh, you know, normally midwives don't, at least uh, nurse midwives don't typically attend uh, twin births especially in the community setting, but, um, a lot of places aren't able to do twin births. So the fact that we could do that as long as our physician was there with us, it was a really great experience. Yeah. And so you must've had a, a physician that really supported midwifery care then who was really educated about the science behind it. Yeah. I think the structure that had been built for that practice kind of created the expectation that we were going to be collaborative. And, and then that that's what we did. I love that. Okay. That's very, very cool. I did not know that. You learn something every day. <laughs> I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> okay. So moving forward, one of the other things you touched on a little bit is what um, midwives can actually do outside of pregnancy. So for people who do know what midwives are, they often think it's just mainly for pregnancy and midwives are fabulous for pregnancy, but what can you guys also do outside of anything pregnancy related? Yeah, I mentioned that we can do like well body care or annual checkups. So anything that you would go to a um, or think that you needed to go see an OBGYN for just like normal checkup, um, you can come to a midwife for. Um, so we do annual visits with pap smears, breast exams. We can do, you know, a full head to toe physical assessment we can troubleshoot any problems you might be having with your menstrual cycle. We can um, prescribe birth control contraception. We can educate you on the fertility awareness method of contraception or, or 
you know, family planning. We can also insert IUDs and other long acting um, contraception. We can order mammograms and lab work and ultrasounds. And we can, some of us can do ultrasounds. We can, we can do a lot. Yeah. And then just like in pregnancy, if something's identified on our testing or in our assessment that we determine is outside of our scope, like, oh, we've determined you have hypothyroidism. Let's refer you to an endocrinologist. And so again, using those referrals and that collaboration with physicians and other specialists when it's appropriate, but knowing that a majority of the time, most clients that walk in our doors for reproductive health care are healthy, young, they don't have a lot of comorbids and we're just there to catch anything that comes up that is abnormal and then direct it to the right place. Yeah. So the midwifery care model actually has a very wide scope of what they can do. At least for nurse midwives. I know for other branches of midwifery, they may be more focused directly on pregnancy, but for um, nurse midwives in particular, it's pretty broad. We're considered um, like, you know, primary preventative providers. And earlier you had talked a little bit about the safety data um, when it comes to birthing with a midwife. I think it's, or birthing with a certified nurse midwife. I think it's really important to talk about this because even if you do find, like you said, you are often trying to advocate for midwifery care when you're talking to people's partners, you're sitting there basically constantly uh, reiterating, constantly reiterating <laughs> yourself <laughs> in the data that's available and the data that's there, but isn't openly presented when someone's looking at their pregnancy and wanting to go out. So I was wondering if you could actually go into a bit of the safety data, such as um, having a VBAC with midwife and birthing at a birthing center with a licensed midwife and what that looks like. Yeah. I, I mean, midwives have measurable and meaningful impacts on, on childbearing individuals. Um, There has been numerous data and research looking specifically at midwifery care on a global level and also in the United States. Um, And it's interesting because the benefits, I I kind of mentioned a little bit already, like higher rates of of spontaneous vaginal birth, lower C-section rates, all of that. Um, It also seems to be, that, that happens regardless of the setting, but those benefits seem to be amplified when midwives are paired with a birth center setting. So a birth center is separate from a hospital. It's designed specifically for midwifery care. It supports physiological low intervention birth for low risk pregnancies. Um, and it's great because it's, it's very client, like individualized, family centered, evidence-based, and it's cost-effective people, people love it. So the data for midwives in birth centers are, overwhelmingly positive. There was this really big study um, called the National Birth um, Birth Center Study 2. And they found that nine out of 10 folks planning to deliver at a birth center ended up having a vaginal birth, regardless of where their final birth setting was, which is just awesome. So there's just benefits to just receiving care from a birth center and a midwife. You don't even have to end up delivering there. to have benefited. Um, oh, oh, also like overall C-section rates um, for those planning a birth center birth was about 6%. That's four times lower than the U.S. 
cesarean birth rate for low risk pregnancy, which is currently 27%. So that's huge. Like one, no one wants to have a cesarean birth unless they absolutely need one. Right. So just for the client's sake, but also from like a economic standpoint of the cost savings and the, um, potential like complications that come from unnecessary surgeries. Uh, there's just so much good and like benefit to not doing unnecessary surgery. Um, and so I think it's also important to mention that like, okay, when we're talking about a birth center, it's not a hospital, right? So it doesn't have an OR, it doesn't have an epidural, like, or anesthesiologist to put in epidurals. Um, so we're talking really low intervention and really high touch. So that's when midwives get really in their, um, like what they love to do, which is supporting laboring people and, um, providing comfort in ways that, that actually are supported by evidence. But there are times where, and we were talking about risk where someone's may develop a complication or they may just not be appropriate for birth in that setting anymore in the birth center setting. And they need access to an OR or they need access to an epidural. And so we call that a transfer. So if they've been planning a birth center birth, but then there's a reason they need to go to the hospital, it's a transfer. And, and clients can transfer out of birth center care throughout their pregnancy, right? They, they could develop high blood pressure at 36 weeks and, and need to be in a hospital for their birth and, and be transferred even before they go into labor. Um, and, and most people are risked out. If they're going to be risked out, they, they risk out before they even are in labor because the midwives are doing their job of doing high quality prenatal care and assessing for red flags. Um, and so in labor, it's still important to know kind of like what that transfer rate looks like. So when a client's admitted to the birth center and then needs to be transferred to the hospital, um, that happens only about 12% of the time. So out of everyone admitted to the birth center, only 12% end up having to go to the hospital for something Mm. um, during labor. And then postpartum, it's like 2%. And for newborns, it's like 2% as well. And just because someone needs to transfer doesn't mean there was an emergency. So that transfer rate includes non-emergent transfers too. So in fact, most transfers are not emergent. I think less than 2% of all of the, all, all of the transfers actually are, are an emergency. They're usually because someone's labor slowed down and they need Pitocin or the client is really exhausted and they really would benefit from an epidural. Like those are the most common reasons for transfer. Mm-hmm. Not the, we have to rush to the OR for a crash section. Like that happens 0.4% yeah. or 0.7% or something. Um, and postpartum hemorrhage, like that's the most common reason for a transfer after the baby's born, but it still happens less, less than 1% of the time. And most postpartum hemorrhages that are occurring are managed at the birth center and they don't, they don't even require the client be transferred. So these really great outcomes, when I talk about like low C-section rates and low, um, uh, low preterm birth and all of these really great positive things, they don't come at the expense of newborn or the birthing person's safety. 
So we're not saying, oh, we have really low C-section rates, but we have really high newborn death rates. Like, no, we're showing that it's possible to have low C-section rates and really great outcomes for babies. And you don't have to compromise either one. You can have these really positive low intervention births that result in really healthy families. So um, a lot of people want to know what like the death rate is, which is like really morbid in my opinion, but totally understandable. Like you want to make sure you're not choosing a place that just statistically is going to like be higher risk for your, you or for your newborns to have something really fatal happen to them. Um, but all the research shows that stillbirths and newborn death rates are comparable, meaning basically the same to other low rate risk rates in the U S and the UK across all different birth settings. Mm -hmm. So we know that after we have like 35 years of, of birth center data showing that birth centers and midwives provide exceptional care, but we're still (laughs) underutilized. Like if, if only 10% of people are birthing with a midwife, it's even way less than that, that are birthing at a birth center. Right. So it's, it's so hard to see a solution to a problem and have all of the data and the evidence and examples of it working really well. And people are just not, they don't know about it. They don't know it's an option or it's just not accessible to them. And like you said, we know how to start lowering the um, high intervention rates, the maternal mortality. Like it's so frustrating because it's right there, (laughs) but nobody's raising awareness about it. It's right here. Look, we just, in other countries, they use midwifery care. It's common practice and they have the lower intervention rates. They have the lower maternal mortality rates, but in the U.S. we're still fighting for that. And I just love that you shared all that information of the safety behind it because that is huge for people. I think that's the number one thing we have to talk about is that it is safe and you will be evaluate, evaluated when you were first pregnant to make sure that birthing in a birthing center, home birth, in a hospital, whatever is best for your body and your baby um, to make sure that everything is completely safe. Yeah. I think the biggest like takeaway is we're not doing anything that's like really radical. Well, well, I mean, it's radical comparatively, but we're actually doing less. So the less we intervene with the natural process that is childbirth, the more smooth it tends to go. And it's when we actually add unnecessary interventions. So medicine and interventions, I want to stress again, are really valuable when they're used appropriately for medically indicated situations. But when they're used as a blanket for every single person, regardless of their individual situation, that's when we actually see that those interventions lead to the outcomes that we don't want, like higher cesarean birth rates, lower satisfaction, you know, higher preterm birth, all of that. So a lot of things that we have been taught are just part of the norm for childbirth. Like, okay, you come in and labor and you get strapped up to monitors and we're going to continuously monitor your baby. Mm. Well, continuous fetal monitoring was never researched when it was first implemented. It just kind of went out to all hospitals and they never did a study and it got grandfathered in by the FDA. And now that they've done studies, they found that it doesn't actually improve outcomes for newborns. All it does is increase the cesarean section rate. Yet it is still the 
most commonly used intervention in every hospital across the country. So, you know, there's other ways to monitor the newborn with a Doppler called intermittent auscultation, which is what midwives do. And that has been associated with just as good as outcomes for newborns without the increased rate of cesarean. So that's like one example of many where a lesser intervention, a lower tech option can be really beneficial improving, going a long way to improve outcomes. And I think one of the other big things that we should cover briefly is the, the main differences in terms of OBGYNs and midwives. So I, I think there are a lot of people that think midwives can perform C-sections. And I think it's important to recognize that they can't. I believe that depending on the hospital and the position that midwives are sometimes allowed in the OR. Is that correct? Yeah, I'd say most of the time midwives are allowed in the OR in a supportive role. So, um, but often in some places we can actually train to be a first assist, meaning we can actually help the physician perform surgery. Um, and that is a skill set that we are like additional training that we're able to get. Um, but yeah, we are not surgeons and we don't want to be surgeons. Um, we want to leave that up to the specialists of an OBGYN. And I think if you think of us as in, in the terms of like, primary care and specialty, um, like midwives specialty, honestly, is just normal low risk birth. And we're experts at normal. And we're really good at notif- like knowing when things are falling outside of normal and to send them to the appropriate level of care. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, midwives are usually nurses first, and they go on to get an advanced practice degree in nursing, master's degree or a doctorate degree. Um, they take a certifying exam specific to midwifery after completing their training, which is both didactic and clinical based. Mm -hmm. And once they pass that national certifying exam, they become a certified nurse midwife and they can apply for licensure in their state. Mm -hmm. And then once they get their license in their state, they can practice. Um, they typically, in, in some states, midwives, nurse midwives have full practice authority, meaning they don't need a physician's permission to practice midwifery, which seems like that should be common sense. But in some states, um, a physician has to say it's okay for a midwife to practice. It's called a collaborative agreement. And there's different variant like restrictions to that depending on the state. But Illinois just recently, um, in the last couple of years, passed a full practice authority bill for experienced midwives. So if you have two years of experience and a certain number of continuing education, you can apply for full practice and you no longer need the collaborative agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so physicians, I guess the main like uh, huge difference is like you mentioned, they can do surgery, but they're also special specialists in normal. So like preterm birth and really complex pregnancies where there may be multiples, triplets, uh, maybe there is uh, congenital anomalies identified. Maybe there is um, a lot of comorbidities like hypertension and gestational diabetes and they're pregnant. Like those situations, you do want an expert who's... Uh, really proficient in all of those disease processes and those abnormal 
complications to ensure the safety of you and your, your baby. Um, but for a majority of the pregnancies in the U.S., they're low risk and they're appropriate for midwifery care. I think you're 100% right. I think that when I was doing my research, I, I think they found that 85% of pregnancies in the U.S. are low risk and then only 10% of birth are uh, attended by midwives. <laughs> so that has a big say in what's actually happening in our system. Right. There's a big gap. Yeah. And one of the other things I think parents would love to know is what exactly does a birth center look like? Like what would they have access to? You could even talk specifically about your birth center if you want, because that room typically looks different to what a hospital room setting would look like for birth. Oh, definitely looks different. Um, I'll talk about what Burr Ridge Birth Center will look like because I know it uniquely now because I've been working so hard to get this open. But um, so Burr Ridge Birth Center will be, um, so it's a one-stop shop we kind of call it like a community center. Everything that you would need for your pregnancy, for a low-risk pregnancy, you should get within the walls of the birth center, which makes it really nice for, for families who have this really consistent experience throughout their care. Um, so we do all of their lab work. They'll have longer than traditional um, prenatal visits with us, meaning so their very first visit with a midwife is an hour long and every subsequent visit is 30 minutes long. So you get a really good opportunity to get to know the people who will be attending your birth. Um, you get a lot of opportunities for education and learning about your body, about your pregnancy, about how to birth efficiently and safely, um, and just tools to have a healthy pregnancy in general. Mm. We also do ultrasound on site. We also have classes on site. So we'll have childbirth education classes. We'll have um, uh, even postpartum classes. We'll have support groups. We'll have um, breastfeeding class. We'll have a lactation consultant on staff for consults and for a breastfeeding support group. We will have um, just a lot of amenities that make people feel seen and like their needs around childbirth and pregnancy and parenting are being met. Mm -hmm. And then all within this like really beautiful space and the aesthetics, they're great. Um, but the thing that people usually love most about birth center care is, I mean, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, it looks like an Instagram, like, <laughs> I don't know, it, it looks awesome. And I'm really excited to share it with folks. But the biggest takeaway I think people have is the difference in, in what the quality of care feels like, mm -hmm. not so much what it looks like. Um, but I think what, what it looks like matters too, to a degree, um, because it really does look removed from this like medical, sterile, um, impersonal environment that a lot of people associate with hospitals. Um, and I think a lot of hospitals are, are doing a better job about recognizing how important um, the environment is for healing and for wellness, but I don't think they've all gotten there yet. The birth centers, like birth suite rooms are really big. They're um, so very generous size um, to support 
your doula, your partner, your mom, your support person, anyone else that you want in the room with you. There's a big queen size bed. Um, so not a small twin hospital bed. It's mm. a real bed. <laughs> and um, we have every room has its own private bathroom with a shower, um, as well as a big hydrotherapy tub for laboring in for birthing in. Um, which I'd say at most birth centers, a majority of people utilize the tub or have a water birth because you don't have access to an epidural. So water's kind of the next best thing. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. And then we have a lot of uh, other like tools to facilitate labor progress and birth, like birthing stools and birth balls and peanut balls, squat bars, and all kinds of, oh, we have, um, Swedish bars, which are, are you familiar with them? Like Swedish no, ladders? I'm not. They look kind of like a ladder that you attach to the wall and they have rungs on them, like a ladder. Um, and clients are able to kind of grab a rung and squat down in various different like depths and feel like their upper body is supported. Um, and they can also put their foot up on a rung to open, uh, their pelvis. So it just kind of facilitates additional positioning and, um, comfort. And we also have a birth swing in all of the rooms. So again, have something that kind of supports your upper body. It can go directly over the tub too. So people can like pull on it if they want to utilize that with pushing, um, just like lots of thoughtful touches that just make birth easier for people. Just give them all the tools, um, that they might need and let them pick what, what feels right. Yeah, it sounds incredible. And it sounds like you've put so much work into it. It's it's amazing what you've done, honestly. I love that you have all these different avenues of where people can get support. And this is something that I'm constantly hearing um, from moms that I interview and parents is that in the hospital setting, most of the time, the simple act of moving isn't allowed. And that's one thing that they loved about birthing with midwives in a home birth or a birthing center birth is that ability to get their body moving in a way that it needs at that point in time. So having all of those there, like all, like being able to have a shower, get in the tub, the the Swedish ladder, I believe you call it, called it, mm-hmm. <laughs> is a great yeah. resource because that is so important to, you know, when you're in labor and going into delivery, um, because in hospitals, I don't exactly know why, but it doesn't seem like moving around during that time is very common or accepted. It's usually related to that continuous monitoring that we talked about because they're kind of tethered to a monitor. So they have limited range, but yeah, I mean, there's nothing more instinctually like driving than to move during labor. So to tell someone they can't, it's like, torture I think but um but yeah so we're so excited to kind of encourage people to be able to move around and and find what works best for them and have it in this really private generous um room where they can really feel vulnerable and safe at the same time and we also have this really gorgeous living room kitchen space because the whole point of the birth center is really to feel like a home away from home we want it to be like you're coming into our home the midwife's home and we um we recognize that this is like a really important part of your life whatever it is whether you're coming there for pregnancy or for just a regular annual visit it's still meaningful and we see you as a whole person and we want to welcome you and um and so in our like 
living room kitchen. We have like a full kitchen where what we envision is when someone's laboring, they have their, their family out in the kitchen, like making a meal for as soon as the baby's born so that Mm -hmm. they can all eat together or just that, that kind of concept of gathering and community and how important that is. And really like bringing that back and, and, and fostering it because so much about parenthood is isolating now and midwifery is a really good opportunity to be connected to a community, whether it's the community of like the staff there or the other clients who you've connected with, or just kind of bringing your family into this experience so that they have like some, some, uh, some part of it that, that gives them like some ownership or responsibility to help care for you in the postpartum period. Yeah. I think that's absolutely incredible. And like you said, in today's society, so many people don't have that support anymore. And that's why we have things like doulas and all of these other avenues, because traditionally we'd be living in villages, giving birth and having all of these support networks around us. I remember actually listening to a podcast and I can't remember what culture it was, but it was a culture still today where after um, a woman gives birth, she actually is just told to relax for five days and all the women in the village actually come in and actually help her take care of the baby. So they help with breastfeeding, cooking, keeping the house clean. So she can just take the time to be after going through that. And that's not really what we have today. Like we live in a very fast paced society and people are moving away from family and friends and not really having access to that support. So I think it's incredible that you're also holding that space for family and friends to be there. And also for midwives to be able to be part of that community and give them that support that they need. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one thing that's on my mind that I always forget to mention, but is so important because um, is payment. So sometimes people see a birth center and they think mm-hmm. that is just so beautiful. That can't possibly, that can't possibly be for me. Mm. Um, or that can't possibly be affordable. Cause I think we've associated this idea of like, this is a beautiful space. That means luxury. That means expensive. Yeah. Um, but birth centers aren't like that actually. Um, birth centers are 30 to 40 times more affordable than birthing at a hospital and at least our birth center, Burridge birth center will be accepting most major insurers, including Medicaid and self-pay. Um, so, and most birth centers do most birth centers are able to take some forms of insurance or work with you on a payment plan that is honestly going to be more affordable than an out of pocket for a hospital birth. So, um, I do like to mention that because I don't want anyone to think that birth center care is not accessible because of cost. Yeah. I think that's very important to highlight. Um, One question I do have is, do you happen to have any research on hand about the safety of water births? This is something I'm constantly hearing more about. (laughs) (laughs) So there is some data on, so there's a ton of research on hydrotherapy, which is basically someone laboring in water. And and that, that is just like a no brainer. There's no side effects. There's no risk. It's beneficial. It's a yes, like for sure. Um, for water birth, there is less data, um, that is like concrete. Um, so 
there was a, a article that came out in like 2014 from ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And they kind of said that we don't like water birth. We don't recommend that anyone birth in water and um, it, it should be considered experimental. And so a lot of hospitals shut down their water birth programs after that article came out. And, um, and they, they cited two kind of poor, um, like research or data, if you, if you want to call it, they, they pointed out one like anecdotal research and one like poorly designed study. So they kind of got a lot of, uh, a little bit of flack for that opinion statement and they revised it a few years later and they kind of changed the wording around. And, and now it basically says that there isn't enough data to say that it's harmful or that it guarantee that it's safe. And so that clients should really be supported um, in whatever decision they decide they want, as long as they have all of the information, which is a hallmark of midwifery, right? Is explain client all of the information that we know um, and then ask them what they want to do. And you can help kind of digest or break down what those risks might mean to them. Um, but ultimately supporting the client through whatever choice they want to make. And so that's kind of how I've always treated water birth. There are some pros um, that we, we think, um, we think it helps facilitate vaginal birth. Um, oh, and I should point out evidencebasedbirth.com with Rebecca Decker. She's incredible. Do you, do you know her? I know evidence-based birth. I didn't know her name. Yeah. So Rebecca Decker is the nurse researcher behind evidence-based birth. She is awesome. She has a great book. I really recommend her. Um, but she has really complex non-bias breakdowns of research on different topics surrounding birth. And she has a really good one on water birth, um, that if people are curious, they should just read. I, I don't have all of the like numbers or data on the top of my head right now, but the biggest, uh, I'd say the takeaway is that it's a reasonable option for people to choose if they want it. Um, it could help with pain. It could help with tearing. Um, but we definitely need more data on it. No, I think that's super it's hard to study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's also hard to study when majority of hospitals have already shut down their um water birthing option and also the fact that most water births now are in home birth or birthing centers and we still need awareness that there's even midwives so then how do you even get the right funding to research water birth <laughs> and we do i mean so i it's coming back to me now like the there's a lot of there is like data on water birth benefits for for the birthing person like that's been pretty clear and, and and it's kind of comparable to hydrotherapy it's the risks for the newborn that are less clear um as we don't have a lot you, you would need a lot of births to actually find like the one-off uh negative outcome in, in something like that so yeah. For low risk people, I think water birth is a really good option. I think that there are a lot of benefits for the birthing person and yeah, I've been doing water births my whole <laughs> career and I have never found it to be, uh, inherently dangerous or anything. And if anything, my clients have always really found it very positive. 
Love that. And so you are starting, well, you're almost finished with the Burbridge Birthing Center. This is your birthing center. And I wanted to ask you, when will it be up? So it's not my birth center. I'm the director, but I don't own it. (laughs) I wish. Um, But my owners are incredible. And the administrator has been so helpful in kind of coordinating the immense project of, of building a birth center from scratch. But it should be open hopefully in the next couple months. So we um, have a, our, we had a lot of construction um, delays because of COVID, but starting um, hopefully by the end of February, the construction should be done and we can kind of move in and start seeing clients for appointments. And then we need to get a license from our state um, of Illinois in order to be able to start doing births there at the facility. And that can take either like a couple weeks or several months. So that's kind of what's up in the air. We don't know when we'll start doing births because we have to wait on that license. Okay, gotcha. And yeah, COVID has made things 10 times harder in that way as well. (laughs) Yes. For people that want to find you, where can they um, find your information? So burridgebirthcenter.com is probably the best place to start. And Burridge has it's two R's. It's B-U-R-R. So Burridge Birth Center. And we are on all of the social medias as well, like Instagram and Facebook. And we have an amazing outreach coordinator named Anna who um, manages all of those accounts and is pretty responsive. So if you have a question, feel free to reach out. We're happy to answer them. Perfect. I'm so excited for you and just everyone at the birthing center. The birthing centers are so, so important. And I also just loved all the information you gave us today. It was incredible. And I have so many more questions, but we'll probably <laughs> to set up another interview. <laughs> so I want to thank you so, so much for coming on though. No, thank you for getting the word about midwifery and for starting Onus and all of it is we're really excited for, for you and, and for the birth center. So um, thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you. Yeah. We want to thank Julianne so much again for coming on and talking to us about what is what she's creating in her pregnancy and postpartum work. It's fabulous to hear more about massage therapy and her doula work. If you are interested in reaching out to Julianne, you can find her in our directory at theownercollaborative.com by typing in Julianne Weatherhog. You can also find her in the Seattle, Washington area. If you would like to follow her on Instagram, you can find her at vital underscore flow. And we are so, so thankful for her work and everything that she does and if, also if you're interested in coming on this podcast as a mom or parent please email us at hello at the we love talking about your experiences and even taboo topics and if you are a provider interested in coming on the podcast and sharing more information you can get signed up today at the all right thanks and i will see you all next week bye